Good morning again to all of you, and thank you for joining us for our Sunday worship service. We are so glad to have you here with us and to partake in worship with us. Turn with me if in your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, as we continue our series in the one another's. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes this, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We are grateful for how it helps us see more of who you are, more of who Christ is, and more of what you want us to do on this earth after we've been saved. We know that in times like these where it is stressful, where there are a lot of personal pressures, uh, a lot of things going on in the world that cause us to perhaps have anxiety or have a sense of being unsettled, uh, that it's easy for us, instead of thinking about how we ought to love others, to merely love ourselves. It's easy for us, especially when we have disagreement with other brothers and sisters, to not want to have anything to do with them, to deal with them quickly and harshly. And we pray, Father, that we would take what we read here this morning as we, and help us to study and, and meditate upon it so that we would not do that, so that we would please you and glorify you as we strive to love one another and care for one another by desiring more of Christ for one another. We pray that you would glorify yourself this morning as we study your word. Uh, may your message be made clear this morning. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. God created our bodies to be incredible machines. While each of us are gifted in different ways, some people have inherited better genes than others. When we try to follow the doctor's orders and get our exercise, some of us take to exercise eagerly. We're like a dog left alone in the meat aisle. We just run to it. And we enjoy it, and it's great. However, others of us, we take to our exercise begrudgingly, like a five-year-old who must eat their broccoli or their Brussels sprouts before they're able to leave the table. And the rest of us, well, eh, we'll get to it later. Regardless of whether you love exercise or you live by the motto that exercise is optional, something all of us experience while exercising at some point is pain. 
Now, the Marines would tell us that pain is weakness leaving the body. That's that's true in a sense, right? Because if we're exercising correctly, it's a true statement in that we're pushing our muscles to put in the work to get stronger. And so our muscles, when, when they feel a little bit of pain, a little bit of soreness, it means that we've done our work. Our muscles are getting pushed. They're getting stretched. They're, they're getting stronger. But if you're like me, and you're easily injured or uh, perhaps you've been exercising incorrectly or you've been pushing yourself too hard, that pain in our body is, is actually weakness. It becomes a weakness that, must, that, that we must compensate for in order to function. For example, if uh, our injury is in our lower body, say our knees or our ankles, we compensate by limping or by using a device like a cane or crutches. Many of you have seen me walking around the church at various points with a cane because I've hurt my, my lower body and I needed something to compensate for uh, the, the weakness that is now in my, in my body. Now, that compensation, limping or the cane or the crutches, uh, they, they can be helpful. However, at the same time, it could make things worse because the body is now functioning in a way that is different than normal function. Other muscles and other body parts are being engaged in a way that they normally are not used. And uh, hopefully though, after a while, after some time of healing, uh, if that that, uh, injury is not too severe, that that the healing and strength will return to the body and, and the compensation will end shortly. At least that's what we hope is the normal pattern of our lives when we get injured. Now, the church body has often been described and compared to the body of Christ. And that's the reason why we do call it the church body. Paul uses this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 when he compares the different gifted people God gives to the church to our bodies. Since the entire church collectively represents Christ's body, each individual has a function to play in the body. We all have something to do, just like our cells. Every single cell has something to do in our bodies. Every single organ has something to do in our bodies. Every ligament, every body part has a function. And so when we are all functioning well individually, The whole body is healthy. But when one part is hurting, then the whole body is hurt or injured. The stronger parts of the body will have to compensate for the weak part of the body. And therefore, we ought to care for our hurting members until they are strong again. In our passage this morning, we are not necessarily addressing how to help an injured member of the body in their hurt. That's another sermon. But we are talking about how those who are strong ought to care for those who are weaker when it comes to conscience issues. Now, last month, we learned from Romans 14 about how believers who are stronger in their understanding of the scriptures ought not to judge younger believers for their failures to grasp the scriptures right away. And not only that, 
They were not to reject them from fellowship. Instead, stronger believers are to act considerately towards weaker believers. They're to accept them into fellowship. They're not to judge them, but they are to build them up in the faith. And Paul continues this exhortation to the stronger believers here in Romans 15 as he provides two exhortations to Christians to build one another up in greater godliness so that the power of the gospel may be seen. Two exhortations to Christians to build one another up in greater godliness so that the power of the gospel may be seen. The first exhortation Paul gives believers is that Christians are to edify one another. Christians are to edify one another. Verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. As Paul continues to identify some Christians as strong and some Christians as weak, this identification is not an insult, but it is a recognition of different levels of maturity in the Christian faith. If you do not remember Romans 14, the weaker believers in this case were Jewish converts who were convinced that in order for them to maintain their righteousness before God, they needed to continue to observe the dietary laws and ceremonial days or festivals found in the Old Testament. Generally speaking, it would not have been wrong for them to continue to observe the dietary laws or the festival days, but the problem for these believers was that they thought that the observance of all these things would help them maintain their righteous standing before God. To rephrase this idea, essentially what they were thinking was salvation was accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ in addition to their own ability to obey the Old Testament, or certain elements of the Old Testament. A modern equivalent to this idea would be how Roman Catholics would affirm that we need to believe in Jesus Christ, but we also have to do good works, that we would also have to observe the sacraments. Right? It's not just faith in Jesus alone, but it's faith in Jesus plus something else. But this is not what the scriptures teach. This is not what Jesus taught. Salvation is accomplished by Christ alone. And it is given to us graciously by God to us through faith alone. If you've truly repented of your sins and you've believed upon Jesus Christ, there is no need to seek additional ways to continue to keep yourself saved. Jesus does that for you. He keeps you saved himself. You should seek to obey God to demonstrate genuine fruits of repentance and love for God. You should do that. But these actions do not save you. They are evidence of your faith in God. Now, those who Paul identifies as strong were those who understood that salvation in Jesus Christ was accomplished through faith alone. There was no need to add on to the gospel. And as we see, Paul identifies himself with the stronger believers. However, Paul understood that the tendency of stronger believers is not to be patient with those who are weak. They tend to be impatient. They tend to be dismissive because those who are strong, they don't want to revisit old concepts. They want to move on, to move forward from the elementary things and live in their freedom. 
In a sense, this is kind of like older children in a family who tend to want to play with their younger siblings as if they are same age friends. And they get frustrated with their younger siblings' developmental inability to play as if they were a same-age friend. Why can't my baby brother, who's barely one, run around with me and chase me? Why can't my three-year-old baby sister understand what it means to share? There's that frustration that's there. Because the older one understands sharing, or perhaps the inability of the younger one. But they don't. They want to play. They want to do things. They want their younger sibling to operate with them on the same plane as them. And so, instead of being frustrated or intolerant of the weaker believers, Paul is specifically telling these stronger believers that they are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Again, Paul is not insulting these other Christians by saying that they are without strength. He's noting that these believers are still developmentally young in their faith. They are not yet capable of operating on the same level as their spiritual older siblings are. And as a result, stronger believers are to come alongside weaker believers. They're to help them bear the load. They're to help them learn what God's Word has to say. They're to teach them so that they too, these younger believers too, can grow strong. The idea of bearing weaknesses is similar to the idea of a tutor who comes alongside a student to teach them in a subject in which they're weak, to help them master difficult principles so that they can move on to more complicated principles. The last half of verse 1 And verse 2 says this, We ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. For each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now, should these stronger believers be tempted to despise this duty of bearing the weaknesses of those without strength and they're begrudgingly helping weaker siblings in the faith, Paul explains that the that the whole point of bearing weaknesses is not just to please ourselves. It's not so that we can no longer have to be patient with those who are younger in the faith, right? The idea is if we get them up to speed, then I don't have to be nice to them. I don't have to be uh, as patient or as nice to them as I am while they're behind. That's not the case at all. Those who are strong ought to desire to please their neighbor for their good. And some of you might be thinking, that is no better. That is no better. This seems worse because you have to actively please your neighbor for their good rather than yourself. How long is this going to take? How long do I have to continue to defer to this weaker brother? That's what some of you are thinking, right? I know that's what I, I would have been tempted to think. But Paul is not saying that we can never do what we want to do. Rather, he is saying that we ought to have consideration for our brothers and our sisters. Additionally, he wants us to see that stronger believers, 
as we, as we want to show consideration for our younger, uh, younger siblings, we are to have a loving concern for our fellow believers so that they can achieve the maturity that God wants for all of us. In Colossians 1.28, Paul proclaims that the goal of proclaiming Christ is so that every man will be complete in Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 3, 16 to 17, Paul emphasizes the profitability of Scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Every Christian, every Christian, from the most mature of us to the youngest of us, has the responsibility to grow in Christ-likeness and to help others grow in Christ-likeness. This is the good that Paul has in mind when he says that the strong ought to please their neighbor for his good. The good is Christ-likeness. The good is holiness. This is not our neighbor's perceived idea of what is good for them, but what God determines is good for them. What's good for them is their edification, the the building them up uh, in, in the faith. Notice, too, that those who are strong and those who are weak, right, these are relative terms. There is always going to be someone who is stronger in the faith than you are. There is always going to be someone in your life who's going to be weaker in the faith than you are. At all times, we, are going, we, we want to strive to be edified and to edify. To be edified and to edify. The ultimate motivation and example for this kind of love and care for weaker believers is found in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In a similar way to how Paul points the Philippians to Jesus' example of humility, Paul is pointing the Roman believers and us to consider Jesus' example when it comes to interacting with believers who are weaker in the faith than we are. Now, by referring to Jesus simply as Christ, Paul is emphasizing Jesus' role as Messiah. He is emphasizing Jesus' kingship to his readers. So, if stronger believers believe that bearing the weaknesses of those without strength and not pleasing themselves is beneath them, Paul points them to Jesus and says, Behold your Lord. Behold his example. Behold the example of the King of Kings. Though he alone rightly deserves to please himself, he did not do so. In the second half of verse 3, Paul makes a reference to Psalm 69.9 when he writes, The reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. This quotation of Psalm 69.9 is not one of fulfilled prophecy, but it was meant to draw a comparison. It was a demonstration of Jesus' similarity to David in enduring rejection on behalf of God. 
Like David, Jesus was so focused on doing God's will over accomplishing his own will that there were those around him who were reviling him or insulting him. They were insulting God, first and foremost. But because of how dedicated that they were, uh, that they were to God, those insults were not just to God, but they extended also to God's servant. And so, when we remember that our Lord had every right to do what he wanted to do, but chose to please God rather than himself, this is instructive for us. This is not only a, an example of what true humility looks like, but it's also an exhortation for us to lay aside our desire to please ourselves for the good of those without strength. We're not just looking at Jesus and saying, wow, Jesus, good for you. I could never do that. That's not what Paul wants us to do here. He wants us to look at Jesus and says, wow, Jesus, what an example you set. I'm going to strive to do what you did. We could be tempted upon reading this to think that Christ not pleasing himself so he can please God is merely an exhortation to turn away from sin so that you can serve God through obedience to his word. But that is not what Paul is writing here. That's not his intended application here. That's not the context of his quotation of Psalm 69. As we look to Christ's example of submitting himself to the will of the Father, those who are strong are to imitate that desire not to please ourselves in order to seek Christ's likeness for those who are without strength, even if seeking their edification is not something they welcome initially. Okay, just because you're looking out for someone, you're looking out for their good, and you're coming alongside them does not mean they're going to be like, wow, thank you so much for coming up to me and pointing out where I need to grow in Christ-likeness. They might not, they not, be, they might not be thankful for that. They might be upset with you at perhaps uh, what they believe you might be insinuating about them and their faith. Whenever there is conflict in the church, whether they be over preferences, politics, or, or whatever it might be, both stronger believers and weaker believers can be guilty of uncharitable and unchristlike behavior towards one another. Both sides probably believe that they are in the right. They both probably believe that they are being most biblical and most faithful to Scripture. So how... Do we sort this all out? How do we know who is the stronger believer and who is the weaker believer? Well, this is not a comprehensive guide to figure that out, but we do not determine who is the stronger believer compared to the weaker believer solely based on how much scripture a person can quote to back up their point regarding a certain issue. That might seem odd to you, but let me explain. Anyone can quote scripture. Anyone can quote scripture that seemingly backs up their point of view. So the issue isn't necessarily how much scripture you can quote. The question is who understands scripture in its immediate context, in its chapter context, in its book context, in its whole Bible context. Who understands the scripture well in all of those contexts. Who understands the theology 
properly. Brothers and sisters, we are people of the book. We submit ourselves to the scriptures. We don't make the scriptures submit to us. That sounds like a difficult task, doesn't it? It almost sounds like you have to be an expert in the Bible before you can even begin to think biblically. And while you should strive to grow in your Bible knowledge and in your theology, you don't have to hold a doctorate in order to live as a Christian or to think biblically. You do, however, have to live with a constant desire to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. And that includes a desire to seek out the scriptures and submit to scripture. Whether it's listening to sermons, reading your Bible, listening to an audio Bible, uh, just uh, reading other good Christian books, we should strive to want to grow more in our Christ-likeness, to build ourselves up, to feed ourselves the food of the Word of God, to make our bodies strong, to make our faith strong. And it is for this reason that Paul reminds his readers in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What was written in earlier times is a reference to the scriptures that came before the letter of Romans. Paul is talking about the Bible. The Bible is meant to be instructive to us. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about God's will, about what is righteous and what is not. Now, Christians from other denominations, they're often frustrated by Christians who constantly turn to the Scriptures, who constantly look to the Scriptures in order to defend their convictions. And a common claim that they make against those who look to Scriptures for the basis of their convictions is that you are idolizing the Bible. You are worshiping the Bible. You worship the Bible more than you worship God. I worship God. Now, when people claim that we're worshiping the Bible more than we worship God, they're making ignorant claims. The Bible is God's very word. It's from God himself. We see in in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the scriptures are inspired by God. They're literally breathed out. By God. In 2 Peter 1, 20-21, Peter reminds his readers that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. But men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Obeying the Scriptures is not idolatry. Growing in the knowledge of the scriptures is not idolatry. It is worship of the one true God who revealed through his word himself. It is through his word that we know him. It is through his word that we know the way to salvation. So a handful of Bible verses, emotions, and what the culture tells us is right does not constitute the truth of God. It does not make up the worship of God. The worship of God, the instruction that it provides, comes from the word itself. Returning to Romans 15, 4, God gave us his word to instruct us 
about himself, about salvation, about the glorious future that he has planned in order to make all things right, which is why the scriptures are uh, the scriptures give us perseverance, which is why the scriptures give us or how the scriptures give us encouragement. It is through the scriptures that we have the truths and the fuel to persevere, to be encouraged in hard, hard times, to have hope. The Word of God itself fuels our hope. It fuels our worship. It fuels our expectancy upon the Lord. Because what we know from the Scriptures tells us that God can be trusted. Tells us that God truly is powerful. Tells us that God really has made a way for salvation from sin to happen, but also for all things to be made right happen. And so... Brothers and sisters, regardless of whether we number ourselves among the strong or among the weak, our goal in the Christian life as a part of the body of Christ is to come alongside one another. We ought to desire that we each grow, that we all grow in Christ's likeness. If we have disagreements with one another over preferences or doctrine, let us commit to study the scriptures together and to talk about it. Let us Commit to talking about theology together. And if the scriptures do not speak specifically on the things that we are disagreeing about, let's seek to see how the principles of God's word help us to make wise decisions, wise conclusions about what God would want us to do. And if we need help, we ought to seek other Christians to come alongside we don't want to we don't necessarily want to have a debate club with you know two sides going at each other but we ought to have other christians come in and also point us to scriptures that we might not have thought about we want to talk about scripture to think about theology together because this is what drives our life in everything we ought to seek to be humble we understand that we are called by god to seek one another's good to, to seek one another's edification, not our own way. It is okay for us to respectfully disagree so long as we do not abandon one another in the process. We don't want to abandon one another in the process because we are one in Christ. And because we are one in Christ, we want to edify one another because God calls us all to grow in Christ's likeness. And that leads us to a, the second exhortation to Christians to build one another up, which is that Christians are to glorify God together. Christians are to glorify God together. Verse 5. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now, these words, now may indicate that Paul is shifting from instruction to prayer. This is a prayer wish of Paul. He is praying for his readers that God may grant unity in the church, even though there are pronounced differences in the congregation at that very moment. Now, notice how Paul, he, he, he brings down the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures from verse 4 into verse 5, when he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. He brings it down to remind us that the instruction from the scriptures that provide us perseverance and encouragement, 
that provide us hope ultimately are from God Himself. It's from the Word, it's from, it's, it's from the Bible, but it's also from God Himself because it's from the Bible. Right? The very same God who gives you the Scriptures is the very same God who Paul is saying, Lord, please help the strong and the weak in this church be unified. Now, Paul is specifically asking that these believers, this, that they would be of the same mind with one another. And this prayer is not asking God to make us mindless drones, incapable of independent thought. This prayer is not asking that we have groupthink or cult-like behavior in our worship or in our conduct. Paul's prayer is for the weak and the strong to be unified over the common goal of being like Christ, of having his mind and accomplishing his purposes. Now, we may still have some disagreements or different perspectives on how we are to practically live out our faith in this world, but even in these disagreements or differences, we want to be like Christ and to think like Christ, not only in how we approach the issues, but in how we approach one another. How we approach one another. We're going to have people in the church who disagree on how ministry ought to be run, how the budget ought to be used. And of course, because we live in San Francisco and because it's an election year, on how we ought to vote. We're going to have these differences. We're going to have disagreements. And the solution is not to not talk about these things. It's not to push, it's not to, to push everything under the rug and, and, and put it down and pretend like nothing is wrong and there's no problems here. That's not the solution. That's not the solution. We want to be able to, to recognize that we are one with one another. And even if we have these differences and disagreements, that we are still unified in Christ. We're still one in Christ. Therefore, we should strive to talk about these things together, to work it out, to spur one another on towards more of Jesus. We want to, to make sure that all of our thoughts and all of our emotions are informed by the truth of the Word of God. The truth of the Word of God ought to be the lens through which we interpret the world and all that goes around us. The cart cannot lead the horse. The Word of God is most important. And so, when we have these disagreements, when we have these disagreements, and we know that we need to be of the same mind, the way that we, we strive to do this is to begin with ourselves, to address the sin that is in our hearts that may lead us to treat fellow members of Christ's bodies, of Christ's body, singular, sorry, as enemies. We are not enemies. We are a part of one another. And even if someone within the church is enemy-like to you, Jesus doesn't give you an out. He doesn't give you an excuse for not loving them because he said that we are also to love our enemies, yes? How much more then should we strive to respect and love those who are not enemies 
but our family members in Christ. Family members in Christ. For those of you who had siblings growing up or close cousins growing up, and you had disputes, sure, you were mad at them for a little while. But at the end of the day, they're still your sibling. They're still your cousin. Or if you had issues with your parents, they're still your parents. There's still love that's there. That same kind of love, enduring love that we have in the family is the same kind of enduring love that we ought to have within the body of Christ, within the family of God. If we truly want to show the world that the gospel makes a difference, we ought not act according to our passions like the world does. We ought not be ruthless in our treatment with one another. Instead, we want to show our consideration for one another. We want to lay down our rights temporarily to come alongside and instruct, to build up. We want to have the good of our brother or sister in mind. We want to demonstrate through this loving action, through this unifying action, the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ to break down the dividing walls that the world puts up to unify us in himself. Now notice, when Paul is praying for believers to be of the same mind, He's asking God to grant us this unity. He is not commanding for us to have unity ourselves or to create it ourselves. It's not to say that we don't want to create unity, but Paul is recognizing that true unity, true unity in humanity, true unity in uh, in, in mind will never be achieved through our own purposes and effort. We can create it for a while, but after a while, we're going to want to do our own thing. We will fracture, but not so with unity that is granted by God. Now, I want to be clear. There is nothing wrong with the fun things that we try and do to help our church family grow in togetherness. Church family picnic, uh, church family retreat, even the t-shirts that we give out. They're all useful tools that can be used to help us know one another better, to break the ice so that we can get to know each other on a more personal level, and, and even find better avenues to care for one another. These are, all, these are all useful tools. They're not bad. But what we have to recognize is that though we may do all sorts of things to manufacture a unity of mind on the surface level, only God can grant the sameness of mind on the spiritual level. I can wear the same SFBC t-shirt as you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're growing close. We should strive to grow close, but that's something that the Lord grants, right? That the t-shirt itself does not do anything. And by the way, I love the t-shirt. Thank you guys for, 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 the, t-shirt, for the wonderful t-shirt that you've, you've created for us. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, again, I'm not blasting the t-shirt. I'm just saying that the unity that we have if it's going to last, if it's going to make a statement of the power of the gospel is something that God grants. It's not something that we create. 
Okay, we, ha- we have to recognize this. Our world currently wants unity. It longs for unity, but eventually you will see that this unity will fade and die. But the unity of the church is different. It's different because the foundation of the church is different. The, the, the church's foundation is not built upon ethnicity. And that's why we don't identify ourselves as, as San Francisco Chinese whatever church. I'm not blasting a church if they say their ethnicity in, in their name. Right? But our church is not built upon our ethnicity. It's not built upon our political party. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. One Lord who provides for us one faith which results in one new birth. From spiritually dead and helpless to spiritually alive in Christ. And that, that is the beauty of the gospel. It takes people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, and it unifies us all in Christ by God's gracious gift of faith. It breaks down the barriers. It breaks down dividing walls so that God can unify the broken humanity we inherit from Adam through the new humanity, the new creation we have in Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave us his only son so whoever believes in him might have eternal life. God is the one who unifies what was once Fractured, And it is this glorious truth of the gospel that we have the privilege to proclaim as we see in verse 6. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does not pray for us to have the same mind so that we can stop fighting one another in the church. He does not pray for this unity of mind so that his life will be easier so he, has to, so, so he can stop refereeing all of these petty disputes that were arising in the church. Paul prays that the Lord might grant us the same mind so that we can, with one voice, one solidarity, uh, so, solid voice, glorify God. Who else but God could take people from every tribe, tongue, nation, social status, and political party and unite us in our love for Him? Is he not worthy of all worship when we see how he not only forgives us of our sins, but that he also brings us together despite all the things in the world that would humanly divide us? The church needs to be different from the world, but sadly, sometimes we're not. The Roman church certainly had tension as these believers were at war with one another over convictions. It was over whether dietary laws had to be uh, upheld. It was whether religious festival days needed to be upheld. They were at war with one another over convictions. The stronger were basically saying, you don't get to fellowship with us because of your weakness. And as a result, there was no unity. Instead of being one body unified by Christ, they were a factious body divided over what they can and cannot do. 
And even if they were proclaiming the life-changing, life-saving, unifying power of the gospel to others, those who observed how they were interacting with one another could see that they did not practically believe what they preached. And so in their division, the Roman church would not have brought glory to God. They would have brought dishonor to God as people who observed them from within or even outside would see the hypocrisy. And as we can see, this division is the exact opposite function of what the church was supposed to do on earth. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ to the world, the church's job, the church's mission is to proclaim how the gospel saves for God a people. A people that is composed of, of individuals from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The church cannot do that if it is divided, which is why Paul reminds this Roman church that their function, that the reason why they want unity in mind is so that they can, with one voice, glorify God the Father. God the Father sent Jesus Christ to the world to reconcile lost sinners to himself. Eventually to each other, but to himself first and foremost. Jesus Christ, though he too was God, willingly laid down his rights to submit to the will of God the Father. And he did not see that as demeaning, even though he had to humble himself. Our Lord Jesus sought to please God the Father so that when he accomplished our reconciliation to God through his death and his resurrection, the church would turn around and glorify God for saving them all through Christ. What a wondrous truth that is, that God saved us all. Brothers and sisters, when we collectively worship God together in gratefulness because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, we bring Him glory. We bring Him honor. We recognize that salvation is found in no other name. And we proclaim this glorious truth to the world around us. We are trying to show them the way out of darkness. We are trying to show them that there is a way back to the perfection that existed in Eden. To the sinless perfection that existed in Eden. We are trying to show them that there is a solution to evil and sin in this world. And that solution is found only in Jesus Christ. We are trying to show them that true reconciliation with God does not happen through a build-your-own way to Jesus. True reconciliation with God can only come from a proper understanding of who Jesus is. And what he has done. Because it is through God's gracious gift of faith that we are saved. It is because God intervened in human history at the right time that we have access to salvation. Let me remind you again of the words that we read in our pastoral prayer. Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, catch this, 
at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will eventually join in with the saints and the heavenly beings in Revelation 5 and say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory and dominion forever and ever. We will join in in that refrain. Brothers and sisters, knowing that that is our future, unity together in sinlessness, in righteousness, before God together as His people, worshiping Him together, knowing that that is our future, that is our fuel for loving one another now. That's our fuel for loving one another now. We strive for unity so that we can glorify God together because we recognize that salvation is not about us. It never has been. It has always been about the glory of God the Father as He graciously intervened to save us from certain hell. Hell that you and I deserve because of our sin against Him. He saved us Excuse me. He saved us from himself, through himself, for himself. He saved us from himself, through himself, for himself. So it's not about you and me. It's all about God. We want to glorify God because he saved us from eternal wrath against sin. It's because he did this that he is worthy of all worship. It's because of this that when we think about the gathering of the church, it's not only meditation upon what God's word says, but also singing God's truth to one another to remind ourselves of what God's word says, but also singing to express thankfulness to our God and Father who saved us. And if salvation, if church is all about God, and it's not about us, then you who are among the strong, welcome in those who are weak. Bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. If you are among the weak, do not stay in your weaknesses, but walk with those who are strong so that together as a church, we might with one voice Glorify God. Conflict in the church is itself a weakness in the body that must be remedied. It robs us of our strength. It robs us of our vitality. It is a sickness that prevents the church from being the witness we ought to be to the world about God's greatness and what He has done to save us from our sins through Jesus Christ. And as a result, the whole church, those who are strong and those who are for now without strength, are responsible to strive to build one another up, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds so that we will all be mature believers, complete in Christ, who can glorify God together with one voice. 
The Apostle Paul provided Christians with two exhortations here in Romans 15 that encourage us to grow in greater godliness. We are to edify one another. We are to strengthen those who are without strength. Those who are without strength are in turn to strengthen others. Until the whole church is constantly working together to come alongside those who are without strength. We're supposed to be basically turning around and strengthening others. Where we get strengthened, we turn around and we strengthen others. And as a result, when we do that, the whole church together, as we're marching forward, will glorify God together. Together. This is our mission. This is our call. To show the world the greatness and goodness of God as we individually and corporately strive to grow in Christ-likeness. Let me leave you with the words, the lyrics of a familiar hymn as we close. This is the song that we want to sing. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life, our redemption to win, and open the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He hath done. Let's pray. Our Father, truly you have done great things for us through Christ. We do not deserve your grace and your mercy because we were your enemies. We hated you. We wanted nothing to do with you. And yet at the right time, you sent Christ to die for the ungodly so that when we believe upon his name and repent of our sins, we might be saved. We might be declared righteous before you. And it's because each of us who are in the church have experienced that reality. Because we've placed our faith in Christ, we know that you have baptized us all into the body of your Son. And so we pray, Father, in these times, these chaotic times of disunity and disagreement, that, Lord, you would help us strive to love one another enough where we desire each other's good. We desire each other's Christ-likeness. And that we don't let our brothers and sisters stay where they're at in their weaknesses, but that we have loving concern for them enough where we want for them to grow in Christ's likeness. We want for them to grow in strength in their faith. We pray that you would grow in us a heart of concern for those who may not know you as well as they should. Help us not to see them as a burden, but help us to love them 
as much as we can. For those who are weak, we pray that you would help them not be content in their weakness, but help them realize that there is so much more that you have for them, that you want for them, that there is truth and treasure everlasting in yourself. And we pray that, Lord, you would help them realize that that is what they should strive to, 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 to get, to come after, to treasure. We pray that as a whole church, you would help us to constantly be in this cycle of being edified and edifying others. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of church that loves one another enough where we're always striving to help one another grow in godliness in addition to meeting each other's needs. For any who are here this morning who are not saved, we pray that as they hear about the great things that you have done and how the church body ought to be unified and ought to care for one another, that they would see, even if we don't do this perfectly, how much, how much you love them. That this is not a sham, but this is a reality. That they are lost in their sins, that they do deserve eternal hell, but that is not the end. You have made a way through your son to have sins forgiven. And even though your church, even though your, your bride may be imperfect right now, we know that Christ is in the process of sanctifying us so that in the end we will, we will be who we ought to be. We will be the perfect spotless bride of Christ. We long for that day. We eagerly anticipate that day. And until then, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us grow in Christ-likeness. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.